Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, where host and astronaut Charlie Camarda and his intriguing variety of guests share their visions for transforming the way we work, learn, and solve some of the most daunting challenges on Earth and throughout the solar system. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Right. Hello, my name is Charlie Kamara. I was an astronaut on the Space Shuttle Discovery Return to Flight mission following the Columbia accident. I will be your host today on Leading Edge Discovery podcast series, where we will be talking to experts from around the world in areas of science, technology, engineering, and math, but most importantly in research. We're focusing in aerospace and how we solve these critical problems, things that cause accidents like the Columbia disaster. Um, And I am honored to have as our guest, a world-renowned expert in hypersonics, new CEO of a new organization called the the Purdue Applied Research Institute, Dr. Mark Lewis. And I'm excited to talk to Dr. Lewis about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, but also one that I think is critical to the security of our nation. And he's going to talk about why that is so. Mark, thank you so much for, for coming and joining us in a podcast. And as I talk, as I told you earlier, what we like to do is have our guests talk about what led them down this path of science, technology, and research. And you have an amazing, amazing background, many high-level positions in the government, Professor Emeritus at University of Maryland. Tell us how you how you got there. Sure. First of all, it's it, always an honor to, 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 to talk with you. And you know, as a guy who studies hypersonics, I'm always in awe when I talk to someone who's actually flown at hypersonic speeds, which you did re-entering. So, so I, you know, I feel like a poser a bit because I can theorize about it. You've actually done it. So, so thanks, for, thanks for having me in the panel. So, wow, how did I get started in this path? Um, I was, I knew I wanted to do aerospace engineering from a very early age. You know, I was a child of the sixties. I was born in 62. I was one of the kids who was glued to the television for every space flight, Gemini, Apollo, I remember watching Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, huddled, you know, on a black and white TV, observing it. And, and it was just something that I wanted, wanted to do. I was always uh, interested in airplanes as well. I was also one of those kids who, you know, built a zillion model airplanes and flew model rockets. Um, and, and by the way, much to the disappointment of my grandmother, who really wanted me to be a, a medical doctor, because, you know, she wanted one of her grandkids to be a medical doctor. We all disappointed her. Um, so I, I, I got to, let's say, you know, I graduated high school and um, I was always one of the, the nerdy STEM kids at high school, guilty as charged. And uh, I was, I uh, did my undergraduate studies at MIT. And when I arrived not, at not MIT- Not a bad school, not a bad not, school. You know, it's a, it's a technical, it's a trade school up in Boston. <laughs> it's, it's got, it's a, no, it was, for me, honestly, showing up at MIT was like arriving in heaven. So I'd gone to a high school in the, the Westchester County in, in New York. And, you know, there's some really smart kids there, but not a lot of kids interested in science or technology. So, again, I, you know, there are a couple of us. We, we were kind of the nerd crowd at the time. That was back before being a nerd was cool. Now it's cool. Back then it wasn't. And then I show up at MIT and I'm surrounded by all these other kids who wanted to do science and technology and love math. And, and it was like I had arrived. Um, when I showed up at MIT, I, I knew pretty quickly I wanted to double major in two areas. I wanted to, to double in planetary science and in aeronautics and astronautics. And my original scheme when I was 18 years old was I was going to become a planetary scientist, but would have a background in the engineering. So when I you know, worked on projects, I, I kind of know the engineering world behind it. And then I, I had the opportunity to work in a planetary science laboratory and an aerospace engineering laboratory on campus. And I realized... 
my thought processes were much more aligned with the engineer with engineering than science. I love the science, but the idea of actually building things and creating things and solving problems. That was really what floated my boat. And I had a, among the many professors, I had these incredible professors at MIT. And the, the, when I, my freshman year, the head of the MIT Space Systems Lab was this legendary professor named Renee Miller, who had started the, the, the MIT Space Systems Lab. And he used to have this saying, you know, he said, engineers are just scientists who actually do things. And I love that. So long story short, I, I finished up my degrees at MIT. Um, MIT liked to hire its own undergraduates into the graduate program. Um, so I actually didn't apply anywhere else. I stayed on at MIT in the, in the graduate program. Now, I actually started as a graduate student working in the MIT gas turbine laboratory, working on gas turbine engines, and specifically looking at flows on turbine blades. And those are, you know, really fascinating, technical problems. But at one point, I, I kind of had an epiphany, and that was, you know, these gas turbine engines were really neat things, but we kind of knew how to build them. I mean, you could go to the gas turbine engine company and buy a gas turbine engine and they work pretty well. In fact, they're about the most efficient machines on the planet. And around the same time, the United States began a program called the National Aerospace Plane Program, the NASP. Uh, it was a, a, a the plan was to build a vehicle that was given, also given the name of the X-30. And there were two kind of uh, 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 elements to this. One was an airplane that could fly anywhere around the world in a couple of hours. The other was a vehicle that could take off from a runway and fly all the way into space. And, you know, with the hindsight of history, it was, you know, a bridge much too far. I mean, we didn't know how to do that then. We still don't know how to do it today, but it was such a vision. And the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, he went on national television. He announced this plan. And so all that was kind of brewing up. Yeah. Mark, yeah, the the Orient Express. Right, yes, we were going to go from from the U.S. to Japan, and I don't know, two hours. I two hours, two hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it was this incredibly exciting vision, and you know, I signed up to be an aerospace engineer because I wanted to fly higher and fly faster. This was higher and faster. Um, anyway, so so um, I, I, you know, I was a graduate student. I finished up my master's in the gas turbine lab, and the timing was perfect. I started working on my PhD in this area of hypersonics. And, and I smile because my, my PhD advisor, uh, my, my new PhD advisor was a brand new assistant professor by the name of Daniel Hastings. So Dan had been a, uh, did his PhD at MIT and then gone off to do National Lab and had just come back to MIT as a faculty member. And I'm smiling because when I went to work for him, I, you know, all my friends and colleagues are like, oh, you know, he's the new professor. He's brand new. You don't even know if he's going to stick around here, you know, what kind of an impact it's going to have. Well, Dan has also had this absolutely fabulous career. In fact, one of the best decisions I ever made was to go work for him as a graduate student. We, we remain lifelong friends. Um, but so that really shaped my career. So I, I finished up in hypersonics. It was a wonderful time. I mean, we were funded by the Charles Stark Draper Laboratory. And they basically gave money to the MIT Air Department. And, and the, 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 the theme was, tell us what's important. They didn't give, give us a, a project. Give a, yeah. little, give a little shout out to the Charles Stark Draper Laboratory. Am, had yeah. a little something to do with Apollo. They sure <laughs> did. They sure did. And, you know, this really forward-leaning uh, organization that came out of the MIT Air Department. It was the, the uh, Flight Instrumentation Laboratory. As you said, they, they got Apollo to the moon. Uh, Draper was this legendary professor at MIT. And so by the time I rolled along, there were some folks at the Draper Lab who knew they were really interested in supporting hypersonics. They wanted to work in this area, but they wanted to know what was important. I mean, what would they need to know in order to design control systems and navigation systems for these future hypersonic vehicles? So they basically gave the Air Department at MIT a grant and they said, tell us what, tell us what we need to worry about. It was like the best thing you could ever ask for. And there's a gentleman at the time by the name of Phil Haddis. He's still at Draper Labs. He was the one who funded this. So it was like the best opportunity for a PhD student. And, and you're talking about something that I think differentiates research and why we go into research, right? You talked about it. You talked about a little a little bit, a kid growing up in Westchester, New York, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, you know, when I grew up in New York, I, I took I went to a good high school in, uh, you know, Archbishop Malloy High School. Did I, what was an engineer? Did you ever really have a good role model in high school that was a teacher in high school that actually understood what an engineer was even, right? Yeah. So, so you know, I'll give you the, the simple answer. No, I, I never did. And 
you know, this is going to sound terrible. I've spoken to a lot of high school teachers. And I always said, you know, you can have an impact on that student. You can be a mentor to that student. I'm going to tell you, I didn't have that in high school. I hate to say it. Um, you're, you're absolutely right, Mark. And that's one of the reasons why I try to get these programs into the at the high school level, teaching the educators how much fun engineering is and, yeah. and how creative it is. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think back to, I, I had some good teachers, but not really good math or science teachers. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, so my, my, my senior year in high school, uh, I was taking an AP chemistry class, which should have been, you know, this eye-opening class. And, and I'll never forget, I mean, the teacher at the time, she, she's, I, she's probably long gone from the face of the earth, but she was terrible. She had no idea what the science was all about. For her, chemistry was all about memorization. And, and you know, you'd ask, and, and we had this group of, there were some really bright kids in the class. And we'd, we, we'd ask her, you know, these probing questions. Don't just have us memorize the formulas. Explain this to us. And she'd blow, she'd be furious at us. So then when I arrived at MIT, I've got these, you know, these brilliant professors at the front of the room. And it was, it was for me, it was, you know, part of the, 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 the joy of being in a place like that was I, I suddenly had people, that, you know, lecturing to me who, oh, my gosh, I could learn so much from these folks. And they understood science and the scientific processes and, and inquiry. It was, it, it, to me, it was just, it was, it was just eye-opening. So I, I love MIT, and I've done a lot of work with some professors there and the students there, and it's just an amazing, amazing place to get that interaction. And and I and I know you talked about you know um, gas gas turbine engines, mm -hmm. right? And it yeah. just didn't float your boat because it wasn't what I call epic enough. You were looking right. for an unbelievable challenge, and and so was I when I was yeah. at Langley. I'm I'm a little bit older than you, a lot yeah. older than you. Yeah, but it was bit. the aerospace plane was the yeah. epic challenge. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I finished my PhD at MIT and I knew I wanted to, I, I knew I wanted to be a faculty member. And I said, I had this phenomenal PhD advisor, Dan Hastings. And he, he, you know, he, again, if I, if I, if I listen his, his career highlights, I mean, it is also been, he's, he's been absolutely amazing, but so, you know, sit down and we worked out the various places that I could go with, you know, to, to start a faculty career. And I wound up at the University of Maryland. And so 1988, I started there. And if you had asked me at the time what I wanted to do, what I would be doing for the rest of my life, I was going to be a professor for the rest of my life. I mean, that was that was my initial goal. Um, I was also really fortunate because almost as soon as I got to Maryland, I got in contact with some really amazing people. Um, there was a gentleman who had just arrived at NASA headquarters by the name of Isaiah Blankson. Isaiah had, yeah, Isaiah had come out of industry. He had been a PhD student at MIT in the previous generation. He knew the faculty members that I work with. He arrived at headquarters to champion hypersonics. And Isaiah, you know, he, he passed away about a year and a half ago, very sadly. But one of these- Yes, yes. What an amazing guy. Wave riders. Amazing. Wave riders. And, and, and so much of what we're doing today in hypersonics, you can trace to Isaiah's house. But he was so quiet and so unassuming, so in the background. But, you know, ideas like he, he was a guy who said, you know, when we put something in the air, we want to have the same thing in the wind tunnel. It's the same thing we've done the analysis on, you know, kind of kind of analysis, round test, flight test. He pioneered all of that. He, 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 he pushed the idea of, you know, supporting academia, keeping this core group of university professors. So when the programs go up and down, Isaiah was like, we can't hit academia. We need to make sure academia has a steady flow. Anyway, so Isaiah actually got me started. And then worked with some great people at NASA Langley. Langley was my start. There's a fellow by the name of Ajay Kumar at Langley. He gave me yes. uh, Dick Barnwell. Um, the, these folks got me started on a, on a research program. My, uh, my roommate at Brooklyn Polytech, no, no, my classmate at Brooklyn Polytech was Peter Nafo, who was aerothermal fluids, right? He's unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. But, but the good thing about Langley and the reason why we were able to do research was because we actually had really sharp people at headquarters at that time that yeah. understood what research was and actually provided funding. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now, I will tell you, on a very sad note, I was just visiting with Langley a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a shadow of what it used to be. I know. And, and, you know, it was this incredible resource in the field. I hope the administrator of NASA is listening to this and listens to this podcast 
because NASA has not done research in probably over 35, 40 years, the level of applied research that we used to do in many areas. Yeah. Oh, but absolutely. we're going to we're going to talk about All right, we'll that. get to that. We'll get to that. So but but so back to my career trajectory. So so, um, you know, I was on a very traditional academic path, um, assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. And then I got I got sidetracked. And the way I got sidetracked is. Um, I had the opportunity to serve on the Air Force's Scientific Advisory Board. And that, that was a classic example of it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know, and timing is everything. So remember I mentioned my advisor, Dan Hastings. He had come in as the Air Force Chief Scientist. He'd spent two years as the Chief Scientist of the Air Force, which, by the way, the, the most fun job in, in the Pentagon. I got to do it after Dan. So he had helped get me on the Air Force Scientific Advisory Board. They were doing studies of hypersonics. I got pulled into that. So long story short, I this incredible time in the scientific advisor board, and that was another eye-opening experience. The idea that I, as a professor of engineering, could work with a service like the Air Force and help them solve problems and apply my knowledge to these truly existential challenges that the service was facing. I just love that. Um, a term in the scientific advisory board typically lasts, it's typically four years. So they point you for two years, and if you don't screw up, you get another two years. You know, show up to the meeting to get another year. So I did it for four years. It's a part-time job. So I was still doing my professor job on, on, on you know, full-time while I did the advisory board. As my time on the board was winding down, I won another lottery ticket. Um, I had worked on a couple of studies that got the attention of the then chief of staff of the Air Force, General John Jumper. And so he asked me to come in as the next Air Force chief scientist. And as I said, that was like, it's the coolest job in the Pentagon. Um, by tradition, the Chiefs, yeah. Did you did you ever get to interact with Joe Shabika? Of course I did. Oh, Joe what was an a amazing, what an amazing guy, head of the Air Force Research Labs for a number yes, of he, years. Very, yes. very innovative. I'm gonna yes. love to have him on also. Yeah. So so Joe was the executive director, and he worked with probably my closest friend in the Air Force, uh, retired Major General Kurt Bedke. So Kurt was the general officer running the lab. Joe was the civilian, uh, the senior civilian. And then um, Mike Kuliasha was the chief technologist lab. We used to call them, you know, the, mag the, the miracle three. I mean, it was such a team. And then I was the chief scientist in, at headquarters. And it was, it was just this match made in heaven. Uh, I still try to get to see Joe whenever I'm, I'm out in, in Dayton. And, uh, and, and, and Kurt Betke, uh, I, I see him almost once a week. I mean, it was just an amazing team. That's one of the things I learned, I learned in the Pentagon. There are and that, some amazing that's, people. That's what was great as a NASA employee to work on this joint program called the Aerospace Plane. And, and when you look at the number of contractors, aerospace contractors back then, we had like dozen, over a yeah. dozen big time aerospace contractors, hundreds of subcontractors, the national labs, the Air Force labs, the Navy, NASA labs. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal program. And another person I'm going to have on is Bart Bartholomew. Yes. He basically pulled that all together and ran an amazing program. He did. He did. And Bart is also someone I'm still in, in, in close contact with. And you're right. I mean, he had this, this teaming idea where we got really got the companies working together as a national team. Instead of outwardly competing, they're all pulling their resources on this, on this amazing project, which as I said, you know, it's funny, I, I, I look back at the NASA program, and it was incredibly, incredibly ambitious. And with the hindsight of history, as I said, you know, maybe a little bit too ambitious, but so many great things came out of it. But it, but it was well run because right from the start, you know, Tony, Tony DuPont sold that, F, uh, that idea to DARPA, as you yeah. said in your, in your presentation, <laughs> 50, 50K to, to, to Earth orbit, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, um, and, and really... Really, it, it took much took much more than that, but they realized that it wasn't state-of-the-art. And they developed yeah. this amazing technology maturation program under Bart's leadership, mm -hmm. where, where we almost worked in a badgeless society, sharing ideas among companies, industry, academia, and and the government. It was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think one of the I often talk about what what we the aftermath of mass. And part of it was I think this, this collective realization that you know, single stage to orbit, first time out of the barn, probably too, too much. But we can apply that technology in other ways, and especially the military missions. You know, Mach 5, Mach 6, Mach 7, Mach 10, 
weapon systems using that same basic technology, supersonic combustion ramjets, maneuvering high lift over drag shapes, all those, you know, the low hanging fruit with the military applications. And I smile when I say low hanging fruit because it's still incredibly challenging. But then, you know, do Mach 5 before you do Mach 25, you know, five times the speed of sound before you do 25 times the speed of sound. And so it really set the stage for so much that came afterwards and, and the programs that we've gotten in the department today. And, and for the general public, hypersonics means vehicles flying faster than? Five times the speed of sound. Five the, times the, the speed definition. of sound. Yes. Thank you. Now, I'll, I'll still slip into professor mode. So it turns out there is no fixed scientific definition of hypersonics. Um, there's a fixed definition of supersonic, faster than the speed of sound. Because you can always, you know, measure your speed relative to the local speed of sound. Hypersonics is a little bit fuzzier. So we generally say about five times the speed of sound. Some people would say it's less. Some people would say it's more. But what's really important is when you're traveling at hypersonic speeds, a few key things start to happen. One is you get really hot. As you know, you, you're essentially, you've got fr uh, friction as the air is moving over your vehicle. It makes the surface of the vehicle very hot. And that's especially true of leading edges. So it starts driving the engineering design of your vehicle. You need to worry about, you know, making it out of high temperature materials, handling the heat that that vehicle is, is, is experiencing as it travels at those speeds. That's one thing that's really important. The other thing that's really important, you know, any vehicle that's traveling at supersonic speeds generates a shockwave, a sudden jump in pressure and temperature in front of the vehicle. And then sometimes in other places in the vehicle. And the way I like to describe that to the layman is, it's because the vehicle is flying faster and information can move through the air. So molecules of air don't know the vehicle is coming until boom, it's right there. And so there's a sudden jump in conditions and pressure and temperature and density of the air as the vehicle is moving through the atmosphere. At hypersonic speeds, that shock wave gets pressed very, very close to the vehicle. And that dictates a lot of the features of the aerodynamics sort of the vehicle. So that's one of the other aspects that we, we, we include for in, in hypersonics. Um, and the other thing that's important about hypersonics is that traditional propulsion, everything, propulsion systems, engines that would work in the atmosphere, stop working at hypersonic speeds. You know, gas turbine engines only work up to about maybe two and a half, maybe pushing three times the speed of sound. Ramjets, much similar type of engine, they stop working at about four and a half, maybe up to five times the speed of sound. So if you're gonna fly at hypersonic speeds in the atmosphere with some sort of jet propulsion, you need a different kind of engine. And Coming back to that NAS program, we did a lot of work on what that engine would be like. And all that work is now captured in the military programs that you see that are addressing cruise missiles today. No, exactly. So why is hypersonics so important right now, Mark? Because, you know, the thing that worries me is that was my career for 22 years before yeah. I became an astronaut. And as you said, we had we had the lead yes. over the Chinese and NASA Langley had some amazing people. The Air Force had some amazing people. We were doing great things. We had the lead. All of a sudden things change. And why is it important that we this is such a critical technology for our national security? Yeah, we just learned and it's blown up in the news about China being ahead of us. Explain yes. to the public why sure. why we should be worried about this. Sure. So you're exactly right. It is a tremendous concern that we have peer competitors today who have basically surpassed what we're doing in the field. And they did it by reading our papers, sometimes legitimately, stealing information illegitimately. We essentially did our homework. And then I, it's painful for me to, to say this, but we made it easy for them because we took our foot off the gas. So let me, let me give you a little bit about the, uh, the history of the field, and then I, I can talk about what, why we are where we are today. Um, the United States invented the field. The first human-made hypersonic object was a sounding rocket that got launched off of a captured V-2 rocket in 1948, something called Project Bumper. And they started launching out of the White Sands Missile Range, and after, after a few launches, they realized they needed a better location. So they moved the program to a, uh, uh, an island off of Florida, Cape Canaveral, which is how we wound up with Canaveral and then you know Kennedy Space Center. 
Um, throughout the 1960s, we were flying at hypersonic speeds. The X-15 rocket plane was flying at hypersonic speeds. It was an amazing airplane that was rocket powered. It, fell, it dropped off the wing of a B-52 bomber, lit off a rocket engine, accelerated to hypersonic speeds. The pilots on that program were legends. Uh, Neil Armstrong was one of the pilots. Um, um, Scott Crossfield uh, 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 flew the, the X-15. Uh, uh, Joe Engel, just it's amazing. Group of, I, of, I think of, Joe know. Edwards. Did Joe Edwards fly that? Joe Edwards, yeah. Um, he 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 flew he flew it. Um, he was cross. By the way, Scott Crossfield was one of my heroes growing up. And, I, and remember, Crossfield and even Neil Neil Armstrong, uh, Neil Armstrong both spoke at the NASP conferences that we used to have. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And and you know, I I just in a second you're talking about you know careers and career paths. I consider myself amazingly, amazingly fortunate because I grew up with all these heroes. And then in my career, I got to meet with meet them and, and work with them. And I remember the first time Scott Crossfield called me up. I was a, a brand new university professor and I got Scott Crossfield calling me up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've got Scott Crossfield on the telephone. And 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 just amazing. The first time the first time I, I, I was on a telephone call with Neil Armstrong. And you know the 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 the, the seven year old inside of me is saying, "Oh my God, I cannot believe I'm talking to I'm talking to, to Neil Armstrong." So in some ways, I feel bad for the, the next generation because they, I, you know, they didn't they haven't quite had that. Um, so 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 anyway, um, back to why hypersonics is so important. So it was the field that we invented. We 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 developed the National Aerospace Plane, and then we took our foot off the gas. We did national hand wringing. Do we need to invest? Do we need to go fast? When we had programs that failed for reasons unrelated to technology, we canceled them anyway. When we had programs that were successful, we canceled them. You know, NASA flew the X-43 vehicle. It was the first scramjet, you know, jet-powered, hypersonic, high-lift configuration. It flew at seven times the speed of sound, then it flew at 10 times the speed of sound. And after we did that, we canceled the program. The Air Force. Had a um, had a program called X fifty one again scramjet powered. It it worked beautifully and flew once in twenty ten. Flew a second time, totally successful in twenty thirteen. What did the Air Force do? Ended the program. It's mind boggling. Meanwhile, we were producing papers saying hypersonics has a lot of military utility, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. And so other people read this. China read it. Russia read it. So they developed their programs and got ahead of us. So let me step back and talk about why hypersonics is so important. What is hypersonics? It's not just speed. We've had high speed things since the 1950s. You know, truck, you flew at hypersonic speeds in the space shuttle. Today, when we talk about hypersonics, it's really shorthand. It's shorthand for the combination of speed and maneuverability and the particular altitudes at which you can operate, right? So a hypersonic vehicle, we use that as shorthand for something that goes really fast, but can maneuver, it can bank, it can dive, it can, it can change course, and it can fly at a particular altitude that makes it difficult to detect either from the ground using radar systems or from space looking down at the earth. So now imagine I apply that technology to a missile. I have a cruise missile that goes really, really fast that can bank and maneuver so I don't know where it's gonna go. And that's particularly hard to see because of the altitude at which it's flying. What does that mean? It means I've got a weapon that can penetrate into enemy airspace that is very difficult to stop. Not impossible to stop, but really difficult to stop. And so you step back and say, why, why wouldn't you want that if you're, if you're a military? Well, the answer is obviously you want that. And countries like Russia and China have invested heavily. Think about what the Chinese can do with hypersonic weapons. So what are the Chinese afraid of? We, we know the Chinese are planning to take Taiwan. If they can do it with soft power, they will. But they're also gearing up to take it with, with, with military power. And they've made no bones about that. They've, they, they've freely advertised it. They've announced it. They've said, be prepared, 2027, that's where we're going to take Taiwan. Okay, so what are the Chinese worried about? They worry about our Air Force, and they worry about our Navy. That's what they're worried about. We know they're, they're ripping. I mean, they're investing heavily in their Navy. They're investing heavily in their Air Force. Okay. But still, they're not going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the U.S. Navy. They can build all these nice, shiny ships, but it's not just the ships. It's the crews and the experience. 
they're not going to go toe-to-toe with the U.S. Air Force. One-on-one, I'm sorry, we will beat them every time. So how do they win? They will win by keeping the U.S. Air Force from ever getting into the air. It means you attack the air bases. You created the airfield so our airplanes can't take off. How do you beat the U.S. Navy? You beat the U.S. Navy by scaring the air, the Navy out of the area of regard, making clear to the Navy, you know, you sell your ship in there, we'll hit it with a missile, we'll sink, we'll sink your carrier. And, and, and as, a, as a step aside, that, stepping aside, that would be an incredible calamity. You know, if we lost an aircraft carrier, an aircraft carrier is a $14 billion ship with about $10 billion of airplanes and four to 5,000 human beings on board. So, so the Chinese have figured this out, and that's why they've invested heavily. It's a city, right? And so it these are all, and so these are all the reasons, and they are ahead of us, right? They are. But They've now, we, but now we have the Ukraine. We have the conflict in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. in Ukraine, and yep. all of a sudden they shoot down a hypersonic weapon that was aimed at them from Russia, and all of a sudden now people are thinking, "Hey, we don't have to worry about these things." Why isn't that true, Mark? Ah, so so people have asked me about, you know, the Russians have been flying their hypersonic weapons in Ukraine. By the way, that makes no sense. I mean, they're going against targets that don't require hypersonic weapons. So this is just the Russians showing off what they've got. And they've been shot down. And the reason they've been shot down is the Russians build really crappy weapons, right? We know the way they design these weapons. We know the way they operate. And they basically, without going into too many details, they, they bleed off most of their energy, most of their speed. And so they, those weapons wind up being incredibly vulnerable. So they're pretty useless. And, you know, the, I, I will tell you, I never worry too much about the Russian programs. The Russians have been mostly bluster. The Chinese programs that I worry about. And the, the Chinese, I think, have engaged in a fair amount of, watch my left hand, because my right hand is really doing the important thing. And, and I'll kind of come back to, you know, hypersonics. One of, the, one, of the, one of the issues we face with hypersonics is that people think hypersonics is just one thing. I think it's, you know, large, expensive maneuvering missiles. It's not. It is a wide range of capabilities. It's medium-range maneuvering missiles. It's air-launched things. It's cruise missiles. It's rocket-boosted missiles. It's a wide, wide range of capabilities. Um, The Chinese have been very vocal and um, basically gone out of their way to show us some of the things they're doing in large scale. And yet it's the smaller things that I worry about most. It's the tactical weapons. It's things that, you know, fly off of under, from under the wing of an airplane or can be launched from a, mo- a small mobile launcher or can be launched from the surface of a ship or maybe from a submarine. That's the thing that scares me the most because they're lower cost. That means that you can build more of them. And they have some really scary implications, as I mentioned, you know, uh, uh, impacting the operations of an air base. Uh, impacting the operations of the Navy. So they have, I mean, you talk about we we've got up to Mach 10 in some of our tests, but that was for like how many seconds? 20 seconds or not even so so NASA, NASA did so the NASA X43 actually was the first to do everything in Mach 10. They did it for 11 seconds. Um X51 uh 2013 did Mach Mach 5 for about 210 seconds. We've since surpassed that. The programs, including the DARPA programs, Tactical Boost Glide and Hawk have surpassed both of those. But, but we've also done sh- conventional, yeah. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, we've also done, so the conventional prompt strike program, especially the Navy program, um, they've done hypersonics for much, much longer. It's a bigger weapon, it's a bigger system, but they've done hypersonics essentially across the Pacific for you know minutes and, okay. and much higher mock numbers and very successful but now the chinese actually have operational capabilities correct. correct yes and that's the big difference so we've got a lot of programs i want to step back so you know talk a little bit about my career i, I did the air force four years went back to the university was at the institute for defense analysis then wound up back in the pentagon versus uh, the director of defense research and engineering overseeing modernization and then i i finished up as the acting as the Deputy Undersecretary for Research and Engineering. And that was a really wonderful time in the Pentagon from the standpoint that we had a Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, one, one of my heroes, and a Deputy Secretary, Dave Norquist. They understood the importance of hypersonics. We had all the service secretaries lined up. They all understood the importance of hypersonics, but all the service chiefs. So they actually put a huge investment in hypersonics. 
Um, and it was the recognition that, that we had the China threat. And every meeting I had with then that secretary, Secretary Esper, it always started out with, what are the Chinese doing? And the simple answer was, they had already deployed systems. So we put all these programs into place. And some of them were, you know, well-conceived programs, but we haven't deployed. There's still R&D programs. And even worse, our programs right now aren't talking about de delivering hypersonics in sufficient numbers. And here's what I mean by that. So if you look at most of the programs, they're talking about a handful of weapons. Yeah, we'll have a couple of hypersonic missiles on a truck somewhere or on a ship or, you know, on an airbase somewhere. That's not going to scare anyone. Whenever we did war games with hypersonic weapons involved, we learned two important facts. Fact number one, whenever we, the United States, went up against an opponent that had a hypersonic capability, if we didn't have that capability, we lost, period. End of sentence. So that's one of the reasons why we absolutely need it. The second thing we discovered, when we did war games where we were going up against an opponent that had hypersonics and we had hypersonics, then it came down to who had the deepest magazine, right? who had the most weapons? A little bit of a war of attrition. They're hitting us, we're hitting them. So you need to have a lot of these. So if they got a thousand and we've got 10, it doesn't do us a lot of good. So what we ramped up and um, you know, we put this program into place, which we call the Hypersonic Acceleration Planet. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of people making fun of us. Yeah, Hypersonic Acceleration. But the idea was not just to develop the capability, but you need to do it at scale. You need to be thinking about delivering hundreds, thousands of systems. That's not just buying the weapons, by the way. It's having the whole supply chain, the whole production line. You need to have industry thinking in terms of how do I, you know, how do I manufacture? How do I, how do I not make, not just make five, you know, engines a year? How do I make 50 engines a year, a hundred engines a year? You know, not just how do I make a few pieces of a high temperature material for a couple of sharp leading edges? How do I go to production where I'm producing 50, 100, 1,000 at some point, sharp leading edges that can handle the heat load? And that's the key. And that's where we are truly lacking. It's something that this nation has to focus on. One of the things that troubles me the most is because, I, you know, I, I, I'm very passionate about education, as are you, Mark. And I look at the U.S. education system and, and how far behind we are and how much work we need to do, really, um, in producing the numbers of students that have this deep understanding, you know, and, and we look when we look at the Chinese, they're probably orders of magnitudes graduating orders of magnitudes, more advanced uh, degreed students in China than in the U.S. They're yeah. outpacing us by probably an order of magnitude in the number of new uh, resources like wind tunnels, hypersonic wind tunnels, test facilities, things yes. like that. How The other thing that's important is, and what was the beauty about research and having uh, national labs in the, in the Air Force and at NASA, was the mentorship that these students needed to have coming out with a PhD solving these highly coupled interdisciplinary problems as a transdisciplinary team in order to create and solve and understand why these systems and subsystems fail and how to make them survive, how to make them work. Yeah. So, Charlie, you, you've hit a you've hit a topic which is absolutely near and dear to my heart. So you're exactly right. I mean, I worry a lot about the workforce. Now, I'll give you a good news, bad news story. So as a professor, I never had any trouble attracting the best and the brightest students to work in hypersonics. I mean, it's the most, in my opinion, it's the most exciting area of, of, of aerospace engineering. It's things that move really, really fast, really, really high, that have these, it has this incredibly, uh, you know, it could have incredible impact in, in, in so many different areas. I mean, you know, imagine if we could build hypersonic airplanes that could take you anywhere in the world in two hours. Imagine if we could build hypersonic launch vehicles that really could get from the ground all the way up to orbit with airplane-like operations instead of rocket operations. It's, this to me is amazing. So and, I never had any trouble attracting students. And it's not only the students, right? You, I, and this is what troubles me about NASA. Even when I retired, with our product development is still like waterfall, maybe V diagram. Yeah. And they, it's it's not the way we need to use set base. We need to use 
set-based design techniques, advanced techniques for rapidly producing, rapidly learning. Yes. And and yeah. the government is this, these are these established hierarchical bureaucracies. How do yes. we solve this? Oh gosh. So you know, I'll 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 tell you one of my what, what, I'll, I'll give you the I'll tell you the following experience. So so a number of years ago, I was on a panel that was asked to review NASA Langley's hypersonics portfolio. And we were reviewing it essentially to the then center director, but then from the report up the chain to the to the then um, uh, uh, administrator. I think Charlie Bolden was administrator at the time. So we spent two days with the hypersonics folks at NASA Langley. And I want to emphasize, you know, Langley used to be the place for fundamental hypersonic science. I mean, anyone who was anyone who worked in, you know, computation and analysis, you worked at NASA Langley. Anyway, what we saw was the shadow of the former program. So much so that when we did our outbriefing to the center director, we said, I remember this very clearly, we said, you know, you asked us to evaluate the quality of this S&T portfolio. You have so under-resourced this portfolio that we don't think it's fair to them first to evaluate them. This is not fair. And what we really will tell you is you need to put more resources into it. Now, here's hey, one of the, yeah. You want, you want to know something? I, I, that worries me tremendously because, yeah. you know, we solved some major problems after the Columbia accident investigation. Yes. If we didn't have those research centers, we wouldn't have been able to solve those problems. And Johnson Space Flight Center, Center would never have been able to do that. But the NASA administrators don't understand this. Yeah, um, I, and I, yeah it's, it's, it's really painful. Now, here's the one that really got me. And I remember as part of this review, we were talking about scientists and engineers at NASA being able just to discover it. So um, one, of the, one of the individuals that I got to meet, another one of my heroes that I got to meet as a, as a young faculty member was a gentleman named Dick Whitcomb. Whitcomb, you know, legendary aerospace engineer. He invented not one, not two, three major aerospace developments. And yeah. not only, Draper Labs was great, but it was Whitcomb's Lunar Orbit Rendezvous that really got us to. <laughs> well, it. So, you know, Whitcomb, he, he came up with the winglets. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm sorry. You think of, no, no. You think of John Humboldt. That, that, that's Humboldt. That's Humboldt. I'm sorry. Yeah. However, Dick, Dick no, Whitcomb, Coke area rule, um, winglet, yeah. winglets. And, and, and supercritical wings. And, and, but he and Humboldt were, were best buds, by the way. And I got to meet them because the guy who hired me, the, the department chair who hired me at the University of Maryland as a fresh out PhD student was a fellow named Al Gessow. He'd been at Langley for many years. He was Mr. Rotograph. And he and Whitcomb and Humboldt, they were all buds. So, so I got to get, get on the tail end of that. By the way, as an aside, the guy who hired me as a faculty member at Maryland, Al Gessow, he had a picture in his office when he first started at Langley in the late 1940s. And there's, you know, Orville Wright shaking his hand. I was like, oh my God, the, the fellow who hired me into my first real job knew one of the Wright brothers. This to me was always- But, but always th these guys were amazing, like yeah. um, uh, amazing experimentalists. Dick yes. Wickham was an amazing experimentalist, yes. always, in the, always in the wind tunnel, always. In, and that's how he was able to, to, to innovate. And it was this clash between the theorists and the experimentalists that made NASA Langley so great and the realization yes. that you needed both. But the other thing that made it great and that made a guy like Dick Whitcomb so successful was he could come up with an idea such as the area rule. And then he could walk into the machine shop and tell the machinist, I need a model that looks like this. And then he could take that model and he could walk it into the wind tunnel and say, put this in the wind tunnel. I want to measure the properties. That doesn't That's exist today. There's That's no process like that was a totally different culture. And that's what I call the research culture. And yeah. when you read the historians, uh, Schultz's book on, on Langley and how these research centers started, that's what we need to recultivate at, yes. at these organizations. Yes. Now today, if, if a researcher at a, at a place like Langley wants to do that, they you know walk into the machine shop and say, I need a model. What program are you charging to? It, it, and it, I need it, some wind tunnel time. Oh, what program are you charging your wind tunnel time it, to? Exactly. Oh, even even worse, some program manager who has very little technical experience is directing that person. And yes. there's layers of people you have to convince that this is a great idea because they don't really understand it. Exactly. And, you know, back to your point about mentorship. I mean, you look at the, the great days of NASA Langley and you just had this, this legacy you know, of the longtime folks who work in the field. You know, you mentioned Peter Nafo, for example. 
You know, I remember when Peter, Peter was a young guy and then, you know, he was one of the great beards at Langley. Um, my most recent trip, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. They're not bringing in the refresh. There's, there's, there's no way we're not leveraging that, that investment. We're, we're not getting the best and the brightest. And I just read this recently. I read a book about Elon Musk and these other companies. These kids want to do something. Yes, and right. and and what was beautiful about being a researcher, you just like you said with Whitcomb, if you had a good idea, you had technical managers that would give you the go ahead, and you could go ahead and do it. Yeah. And we just don't have that. Everything is governed by a program. It has a specific purpose. It's mm-hmm. no more research. You have and you and you have to bookkeep every hour that you work. That is not a psychologically safe good research environment to to test ideas and to be innovative. I agree. And, you know, I hate to say it because the NASA aeronautics portfolio goes so near and dear to my heart. And yet I look at that portfolio and I I just want to scream. I mean, I don't see the excitement. I don't see the innovation. And and you want to know something? Even though it's the lowest budget element of what – they are doing, believe it or not, the most creative and innovative work. And that's yeah. sad to say. Yeah, it is. It's 3, 3% of the NASA budget. And they're, they're always fighting for their existence. But, you know, we, we, for many years, we battled to keep NASA in the hypersonics area. And it's just, become, it's almost becoming a losing, losing battle. Now, let me, let me give you an example, by the way, of why that's so important. So I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story that happened during the X-51 program. Remember, that was the Air Force's uh, program to build a, a missile-class hypersonic vehicle. It flew between 2010 and 2013. So we're gearing up for that program. And the key technology of X-51 was the engine, the supersonic combustion ramjet, type of engine that we envision as being the key engine to power you, you know, jet power through the atmosphere at hypersonic speeds. So we're going to test it at, at an Air Force wind tunnel. And that wind tunnel wasn't available because it was being refurbished. It was down for maintenance. So we, the Air Force, went to NASA and said, can we use your wind tunnel? It was the Langley 8-foot tunnel. That's and, where and, I, that's where I yeah. grew up. That was my bridge. And, and you know, the, the folks at Langley just, I mean, they did a heroic effort. They got the tunnel ready. They had to redesign a nozzle in record time. They got the tunnel ready. We were able to test the engine. It's this beautiful story because, you know, the engine was successful. The program was successful. But if you step back and say what happened there, what actually happened, it wasn't just the tunnel. It was all the incredibly smart folks who had worked on NASA's own program, the X-43. And because they were connected to the tunnel, we got not just the tunnel, we got all these really smart people with all this experience now working on X-51. And I remember when we did the first flight of X-51, 2010, I was in the control room at Edwards. And sitting right beside me was Randy Boland. Randy had been the chief engineer on the X-43. So I had the guy who was running X-43 sitting next to me for X-51. It was this, you know, amazing example of, you know, government agencies working together. Um, If you don't keep that legacy going, it's not just NASA that suffers. It's the entire government. Mark, we've talked a lot about problems, how we got to this place. What I love about you, Mark, is because you have this amazing energy, you have this passion, and you have this expertise, and you are in a beautiful position because this is going to take a conductor uh, that has this amazing orchestra, the DOD, that loves to work in silos. You have the ability to convince people at at not only headquarters, in, in the Pentagon and in the government why this is so critical, and you need to come up with a plan to pull it all together from the grassroots, getting the students, mentoring the students, and coalescing to get this research back ahead of the Chinese. And I know you're the guy that can do it. I know you, I know you have a plan. Do you want to share? Do you want to share it with us? Yeah. Wow. No pressure. So, 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 (laughs) so, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, so I, obviously it's an area that, as, as you can tell, you're exactly right, near and dear to my heart. And if you roll back, when I, when I first started as Air Force Chief Scientist, so that was 2004, um, I was pushing the Air Force really hard to invest in this area. And I should explain, you know, the Chief Scientist job, 
So you don't control directly control any money. You don't have lots of people working for you. You're simply providing advice. And you know the old saying: a prophet in his own land is is often underappreciated. Uh, I had a I had a couple of really strong allies in that. One is a very dear friend, Dick Callion. Dick is is maybe the the world's foremost aviation historian. And the two of us have put together some plans, some ideas, and how we get the Air Force to invest. Um, they did finally list, and I think it was a combination of factors. One was in, in 2016, um, I was involved in a study that looked at what our peer competitors were doing, and you know the Russians, but especially the Chinese. And the intelligence community had been sounding alarm bells, but 2016, we put it all together and we said, basically, holy crap. This is a, a the, the Chinese have, have done a, a national level investment, and we pitched it. And um, at the time, the acting secretary of the Air Force was Lisa Dispro, and uh, Mark Welsh was the chief of staff. And the two of them got it; they understood why it was so important. Um, Lisa convened a five-hour meeting of the entire air staff of the U.S. Air Force um, in in May of um, 2016, and she basically charged the air staff, like, this is important. We need to address this. And um, General Wilson, Seve Wilson at the time, who was the, ultimately became the uh, the vice chief of staff of the Air Force, the number two general in the Air Force, basically took this on. And so the Air Force was off and running. So that was kind of the good news. The Navy also took it very seriously. The Army took it very seriously. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, in, in the previous administration, we got, a, we got significant funding invested in this area. And one of the reasons that I was brought into the Pentagon as a DDRE was to, to kind of help oversee this. And we had a, you know, we had a, we had a team, we had a principal director for hypersonics, kind of do the, doing this, this, this overall roadmap. So where are we today? Well, you know, sometimes it's, it's two steps forward, one step back. So if I do the assessment today, I think we still have a sense in the Pentagon and across the government that hypersonics is important. I talked to congressmen, I talked to senators, no one ever disputes this. And you've got some members of Congress who really stepped up as champions in this area. Um, Congressman Lamborn, for example, uh, has been a strong champion of hypersonics. Representative Banks um, from Indiana is, you know, co the two of them are co-chairing a hypersonics caucus that is, a, that is addressing this very issue. Um, I don't think I've ever spoken to a member of Congress who when I explained to them what we were facing, why this was important didn't get it and didn't support it. If I, if I talk, look through the Pentagon leadership, again, you know, my, my, the folks who are now in the office that I was in, um, uh, Undersecretary Shu, Deputy Undersecretary Honey, Dave Honey, they all get this. What I worry about though, is that whereas we were messaging on our team that hypersonics was absolutely a top priority, our number one or number two priority, across the entire department, I hear that message getting diluted. I hear people in the Pentagon saying, yeah, hypersonics is important. You know, so are other things. AI is important. Cyber is important. Yeah, I get it. They're important. But you've got to have priorities. and You've got to communicate those priorities. When I go through the list of DOD priorities, the priorities are pretty straightforward. Microelectronics is high up there. No question about that. Hypersonics also has to be up there. And the reason I say that is, I'll come back to the, I mentioned earlier, war game experience. Every time we did a war game with hypersonics, if we didn't have it, we lost. If we had it, but we didn't have it enough numbers, we lost. So it is absolutely critical. So what do we need to do? Um, I actually think the most important player in this is the United States Air Force. Because you know, Navy mission is important, Army mission is important, but it's really the Air Force mission because you know, the Air Force, where's hypersonics play in best? In the Air, we say in the, in the Air Staff, the Air Force mission is to knock down the door. Right? The Air Force is there first. It's, it's air power, it's the application of air power. So if I can have hypersonic tactical systems, weapons that I put in bomb bays, weapons that I put under the wings of airplanes, that can have a decisive, uh, can, can be a decisive factor in any future combat. Strong deterrent factor, by the way. The best weapon is the weapon that I never use. So let's you know get that right out there. We don't want to use our weapons, but if we have to, we want to be able to kick down the door. Um, hypersonics lets you do that. I like the idea of hypersonic systems that, for example, are integrated with existing aircraft. I want hypersonic air breathing weapons underneath our fourth generation fighters because that gets them into a fifth generation fight. 
So, you know, my F-15s, my F-18s that are getting old, they're getting a bit long the tooth, still amazing platforms, but they're not going to do well in a sixth generation fight, a fight against stealth aircraft. So suddenly, if I can fit them with hypersonic weapons, they're back in the fight and I can deliver it in numbers of count. All right. So what are the most important things to do this? A couple of steps. One, we need the workforce. So back to your point. Two, we need test infrastructure. This is critical. You mentioned earlier that China is investing heavily in wind tunnels. We were busy shutting down wind tunnels. We need to reinvest. And I'm very proud to say part of, part of my new job at Purdue, we're building wind tunnels. We're building world-class wind tunnels. So that's something we got to do. Another thing we need to do, we need to get the cost down. There is this sense that hypersonic systems will always be expensive. No, that's not true. And by the way, the Russians and the Chinese seem to be able to build these things at reasonable cost. If I dissect a hypersonic weapon, there isn't, a re there isn't an obvious reason for that weapon to cost a lot more than a more conventional weapon. Uh, I'll give you an example. Think about a hypersonic cruise missile, right? I've got a jet engine, but that jet engine is a very simple engine. A supersonic combustion ramjet is, in principle, about the simplest engine you could ever imagine. It's just an empty duct. It's a tube. Here it comes in, in the front, I, right? There, in it's terms of so moving yeah, parts, yeah. Moving parts, right. Compare that to, you know, a subsonic cruise missile. It's got a turbine engine. It's got compressors and turbines and all this complicated crap. So the hypersonic weapon shouldn't be that much more expensive. Yeah, it's difficult to manufacture, so I need to get my manufacturing costs down. It's got some exotic materials because it's got to handle the heat. I got to get the cost of those materials down. But there are people who think, oh, hypersonics. That's like 10 times more expensive. No, wrong. Hypersonics isn't going to be more expensive if we do it right. And that's where let, we need to focus. Let me jump in there. I mean, I know, I know what you're saying. I was a thermal structures guy. And so having these systems survive, and you talked about the cooling, these are highly coupled transdisciplinary problems that we have to train researchers on to do them smartly. It's yes. not just an, a more advanced material. How do you cool it? How do you make sure it survives? Yada, yada, yada. How do we mentor these kids to do that? And and it's yeah. gonna it's gonna take a while. But so, how, and so yeah, yeah. Continue, continue with your plan, Mark. Yeah. I'm loving so, it. So by the way, you know, I, I I think one of the many things that I love about hypersonics is just as you say, it is the most interdisciplinary field that I can think of. All right, a hypersonic vehicle by its very nature has to design designed so that all of the aerodynamics, all the structure, all the materials, all the propulsion are fully coupled. Uh, I'll, I'll give an example for an air breathing system kind of that uses oxygen from the atmosphere. The whole front of the vehicle is the inlet of the engine. The whole back of the vehicle is the nozzle of the engine. So you can't think in terms of a separate engine. The whole thing is a flying engine, or, or sometimes I'd say it's a, it's a flying self-propelled fuel tank. We had tended, when we train students, when we educate students, we tend to pigeonhole them. We tend to you know, put them in stovepipes. You're a propulsion engineer. You're a structures engineer. Hypersonics has to break down those barriers. And I'm proud to say it's something that we're doing. If you look at the university programs now, driven in part by the Department of Defense, you're seeing more and more programs that are interdisciplinary. Um, I'll highlight one program. The department set up something called the Joint Hypersonic Transition Office with a lot of support from Congress. They are funding a university consortium. This consortium now has over 100 universities. And the beautiful thing about this consortium is it has brought in, in addition to the, the usual suspect, the fluids people, the propulsion people, You've got material scientists at universities. You've got guidance navigation control people. You've got manufacturing experts. This, it's, it's showing us how this has to be done. Not for nothing, um, Mark, but you know, I got to spend time when I was at NASA. They let me have a detail at NYU at my old school, Brooklyn Poly. It's now the Tandon School of, of Engineering at NYU. Um, and what I learned from that two-year experience was that universities universities could be more bureaucratic, more hierarchical, and more siloed than yes. even NASA was at that. Yes. Oh, you're right. Look, you know, when I first showed up at the Pentagon, people would say, how do you do with Pentagon bureaucracy? I left myself silly. This is nothing compared to a university. And, and yeah, so, so you're absolutely right. But we're seeing really strong efforts to break down those silos. I, you know, the job that I, I, I just started at Purdue, one of the, one of the motivations there was, Create an organization that work, that's affiliated with the university, but moves quickly, is fast, is light, is nimble, 
can bring researchers on board quickly, can respond to government interests quickly, and do in, you know unique contracting, all those things. So universities are getting the message. And we ha- and we have this consortium. I know I spoke to some of my friends at Texas A and M and these other universities that, um, but there's got to be there's got to be a conductor that orchestrates this and yeah. integrates this to get the most bang for the buck, to get the most learning for the least amount of dollars, so we're not wasting money. And oh, by the way, not only are this typically do things siloed, now you have classified programs. And to be able to transfer classified material, not even within one program, let alone several programs, we don't have enough um, subject matter experts to spread that knowledge across all these programs. That's almost the epic challenge within the epic challenge. But you're the guy that could solve it, Mark. I believe <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. you are the guy that could do it. If anybody could do it, you could do it. I don't know if I'm worthy, but you're right. I mean, it's it's there there are many elements to this and 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 making sure we've got the right expertise is 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 key. So so I'll tell you one of the one of the, the fun things that I discovered. So I show up back in the Pentagon in 2019. And the fun part, the thing that made me you know really proud to have been an educator was I saw so many of our of our of our mid-career and senior leaders were people I had worked with at the university, former students, former undergraduates, former graduate students, former colleagues um, um, so, so there, there are the smart, talented people in the government. That's kind of the good news. The bad news is they're not always appreciated. And, you know, we, we, I'm sure you've seen this also. I mean, there are times when there's almost a disdain in parts of government for technical qualifications and, and technical talent. And I, I would encounter that. You know, you, the bean counters who, who are really good at what they do. They're really good at counting dollars but then try to make technical decisions and they're not at all qualified uh, to make those technical decisions. You know, you're touching something that's near and dear to my heart because yeah. I've researched a lot about how, how accidents happen and how these cultures get, get, get so dysfunctional, especially at NASA. And it's amazing as a researcher from Langley, when I went into the astronaut office, what was amazing to me was during my interview period, um, you know, one the Senate director basically said, "Why don't you leave Langley that that um, he called it a library?" He said, "Why don't you leave that library and come to work for a real organization?" You know, we built hardware. Had no appreciation yeah. Yeah. for the research. Did not know even when they that they had people that could have prevented those accidents at the research centers. Didn't even contact them. That's how that's how bad it was. Yeah. So I, I see that too. I mean. There's kind of a, a lack of recognition of the importance of the ST investments that we as a nation make. And I, I was actually just talking to a good friend in the Pentagon earlier today on this very issue. And you know, you trace back, you you look, for example, it's kind of like, you know, look at look at my iPhone. Almost every piece of the technology in this iPhone can be traced back to basic science technology investments that are made by the US government. And you you look at art, everyone talks about artificial intelligence today. And how you know the commercial industry has gone beyond what the government is doing. Great, but look at how they did that. It was from fundamental research investments that were made that were made by the U.S. government. Don't um, don't, don't get yeah. me started with Bert yeah. Tan jumping up and down and said scale composites one, NASA zero. They didn't know what composites were if it wasn't for the U.S. Air Force labs at Wright Pat yes, and NASA exactly. Langley. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Look, even even SpaceX. So where did the original investments for SpaceX come from? Um, yeah. The Falcon 1 vehicle came out of a DARPA program. So, so yeah, people tend to underplay that. And, you know, what I'm scared about is I'm hearing more and more this notion of, yeah, well, but investing in basic research is fun, all fine and good. But we need to actually build stuff. But you know what? If you don't invest in the basic research, you won't have any stuff to build. You won't have any future things to build. Mark, let me tell you something. I could talk to you for days, yeah. and I, and I hope I hope I get the chance to visit you at Purdue. I'd love to talk to your yeah. students, and I'd love to watch what's happening. But we're going to have to close because it's almost an hour, and we could have yeah. another session. I'd love to have another session with you. Going to have another session with Bart Bartholomew. I think the country needs to hear from even some of the, these old timers like me, and yeah. even older timers like Bart. 
because I, it's almost like we need a program like a NAS program to bring all the different elements from all the different agencies working together as one integrated team to share that knowledge because we need to accelerate the knowledge. We need to accelerate the students that understanding these knowledge. Oh, by the way, they have to be U.S. citizens yeah, and we, yeah. we need more of them. So any way at all that I could help you and the team, Mark, you have a daunting challenge in front of you. What would you like to leave the audience? What would you like to leave the audience, hopefully on a positive note? So really positive note. Look, I'll leave the audience with, and I'll especially address it to the young, young, young folks who might be listening to this. I know of no more endeavor in, in, in engineering that is as exciting as hypersonic flight. I mean, the thought of hurling through the atmosphere at speeds that are greater than a mile per second. That's what hypersonics is. The implications that can have to the military, to the civilian sector, um, um, the, the, the role that it plays. And we didn't even talk about the space applications. You know, that's a whole other aspect of hypersonic flight that you experience firsthand. You know, anytime a, a vehicle enters the atmosphere of Mars or Jupiter, it's a hypersonic vehicle. This is an incredibly exciting field. We need the best and the brightest. We've got existential threats that we're facing, but we've also got these incredible opportunities opening up ahead of us. And there, there are some really brilliant minds that we can, we can bring to bear in this area. Mark, thank you so much. I mean, we're so lucky to have you. You're such a busy guy. Um, thank you for sharing the time with us today and anything we could do to help we're gonna we're gonna post um, if you have a website if you have a place for students and and researchers to to contact you at uh, the Purdue Applied Research Institute. We're gonna we're gonna host it on the podcast. All those connections so that you could share your vision and inspire more people like uh, like me and other future explorers. Um, Mark, thank you thank you so much. Charlie, always a pleasure. I love talking to you. I'll be back anytime you ask. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast with Charlie Camarda, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP mag 24.